Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament, so it might be easier to find it by working backwards. Zechariah chapter 3. This came out of really just my own personal devotions. I was just, I happened to be in Zechariah. If you've not read Zechariah, I'd encourage you to read the whole book. It is outstanding. It is convicting. It is encouraging. And so I was just in it, uh, personally a couple weeks ago and I was reading through chapter three. I had not thought of Zechariah chapter three as the go-to Good Friday passage, but it, it most certainly is. And as we read through this, I am confident if you are a Christian, you're going to be deeply encouraged by what God had to say about the cross 500 plus years before the cross. Uh, tonight, we're going to read the whole chapter, whole, all of chapter 3. Uh, Zechariah was a prophet of God speaking to God's people after they had been brought back from Jerusalem following uh, captivity in Babylon. So let's read God's perfect word. And and if you're a young child, I want you to I want you to engage tonight. This is a a story that I think will hold your attention, no matter your age, I think it will hold your attention. Uh but don't think that just your parents that God only brought your parents tonight. God brought you tonight. And I think as you listen to this and you hear the description, you hear what God did to this man named Joshua, I, I think it will intrigue you as it's intrigued me. So let's read God's perfect word. Zechariah, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand or a stick plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold. I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And, and listen to this, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Lord, we pray you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Well, church, as we've just seen, this chapter opens dealing with the subject of sin. 
specifically the people of God's sin. And it's symbolized in this picture, in this vision about a man named Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. And Joshua, in Zechariah chapter 3, in this vision, is on trial in a most sobering courtroom scene. You've got two sides here, don't you? You have the angel of the Lord on the one side of him, and on the other, Satan. And we see in verse 1, it's clear, Satan takes the role of prosecutor. So, So picture, young ones, picture senior saints, us in a courtroom, and Joshua standing there, and Satan, the prosecutor, accusing him. Satan has come to accuse Joshua, the high priest. And Joshua is not just representing himself here. He's representing the entire nation of Israel. He's representing God's people. And Satan wants it to be clear that Joshua and God's people are guilty. They're not worthy to be in a relationship with God. They are not worthy to have access to him. They are unclean. And on their own accord should not be granted access to God. Now, many of us know that Satan is the great deceiver. And in the Bible, there are clear examples of his lying tongue. But it's also true that when he accuses us on the matter of sin, he has much truth to work with, doesn't he? And in Zechariah 3, we see he is not wrong in his accusation. Because look at verse 3 with me. Joshua Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Joshua is guilty. Joshua is unclean. It's not that Satan is saying he's wearing filthy garments. He is. It's, It's a fact. Joshua stands there in his own filth. He stands there representing the filth of God's people. Based on their character? Based on their moralism? Based on their attempts to holiness? They do not deserve to be in the presence of God. And and this word here in verse 3, clothed with filthy garments. This isn't you at a baseball game eating a hot dog and the ketchup hits your shirt. Ah, no, I got something on my shirt. I'm going to go to the bathroom and try to get it out. And this isn't even something that's maybe a little deeper. You're like, you know, man, I can't do this on my own. I, I tried to wash it. It won't come out. I gotta bring the professionals in. I gotta, gotta dry clean it. No, it's, it's worse than that. This word filth here is head to toe stain. This is a stain so deep, deep down in the fibers of the garment. It would be probably wiser and better to just throw it out than try to make it clean again. And church, that's the reality for all of us, isn't it? Romans 3 makes clear that we're all stained with sin. And we're stained head to toe. If we stood before the Lord based only on our character, only on our actions, we'd all be described as men and women covered in filthy garments. If I stood before the Lord on my own, based on only what I have done and who I am at my core, I would be described as a man standing in filthy garments. And Satan would rightly be able to accuse me and you of your guiltiness before God when we understand the standard is nothing less than perfection. We talked about this a couple weeks ago on a Sunday morning that we try to make the standard, well, well, it's it's here, or maybe it's here. No, no, it's to the heavens because it's 
perfection. That's the standard. 19th century English pastor Charles Spurgeon writes the following regarding Satan's accusations. He says, truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day will furnish him material for his charges. Yesterday you were impatient. The day before you were proud. Another day you were slothful. On another day angry. And I would add to Spurgeon's quote, sometimes we're all of these things on the same day. Oh, what a den of unclean birds the human heart is. If the old accuser wants reason for accusation, he may indeed find as many as he wills and continue to accuse as long as ever he pleases, for we are all together an unclean thing. So, so this court case, this courtroom scene, scene seems quite cut and dry, doesn't it? The, the prosecutor makes his accusation, and all you have to do is look at the defendant to recognize the validity of the charges. Satan says, he's unclean. You look at him. He's unclean. He's standing there in filthy garments. It seems like kind of a cut and dry case, but then the angel of the Lord speaks, and we discover things begin to move in a very wonderful and maybe surprising direction. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand, or like I said, a stick plucked from the fire? The angel of the Lord responds, not by denying the claims of Satan, but by reminding him and reminding the rest of the courtroom who the defendant is. He is one of God's people. He has been given undeserved grace of God. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not one of them that I have rescued? The original context is the captivity in Babylon. He has rescued them from exile. He has rescued them from their captivity. But even more importantly, it's a reminder of God's rescue of us from our captivity from sin. God's making clear that Joshua and his people are acceptable and are brought into right relationship with God, not because they are worthy, not because of themselves, but because of his love. Because what he has done in snatching them from the fire. You couldn't come up with better illustration there. That's what's happened. If you're a Christian, you've been snatched from the fire. Now that seems that should seem impossible to you at first glance, right? If you know God's word, if you have a, a correct understanding of God's holiness and the depth of our sin, God makes clear in both the Old and the New Testament that we must be holy to be with him who is holy. Because God is sinless and pure. He cannot be intertwined in relationship with those who are stained with sin. So just to be able to say, well, he's one of mine. Okay, but he's a sinner. One that you picked is is unclean. He's unworthy. What, what do we do here? And God knows that. And it's because he knows that that he gives the commands he does in verses 4 and 5. Look at them there with me. Children, listen, listen to this. Or if you have your Bible or you're near your parent, look at this language. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is incredible imagery. Joshua is standing there in filthy garments. He's unclean. He's unworthy. The iniquity of sin rests upon his shoulders and an amazing act of kindness. God removes the filthy turban and garments and replaces them with clean new ones. I have taken your iniquity away from you. No person will ever hear a greater comment in their whole life than that one. I have taken your iniquity away from you. And church, it's essential to understand just because Joshua will never see his iniquity again, that does not mean there isn't still a price to pay for it. Joshua will never see his iniquity again. But the story of that iniquity is not over. It cannot just go under the rug, right? God just can't act like it didn't happen. God is gracious, but God is perfectly just, and all sin must be punished. The price of every sin committed must be paid for God to retain his perfect justice. And that's why we see verse 9. That's why we see verse 9. This is a promise made. This is, think about where you are in church history. It is, it is by faith that we are saved, but we are not, we do not have a blind faith. We have a confident faith because Zechariah makes this pro- promise that they are looking forward to that tonight we look back on. Look at verse nine. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now get yourself into Zechariah's time. Think about being God's people 500 plus years before the cross. How is God going to take the iniquity of all his people in a single day? I mean, these people are constantly going through the sacrificial system to point out how sinful sin is, to understand how unclean we are. How could God remove the iniquity of this land in a single day? The land is a symbolic phrase that represents the collective sin of all God's people. They must have had, must have thought, what is it going to be like? Church, we know, don't we? Because in confident faith, we look back and see this is the promise of Good Friday. This is Good Friday in the Old Testament. God promising, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The punishment for the sin of all people, all of God's people, all who have repented and trusted in Christ, is removed from them, but willingly placed on the shoulders of Jesus as he hung on that cross, so that we might be forgiven and God remain just. Listen to theologian and author Richard Phillips speak about the phrase, In verse 9, this statement ultimately points forward to the day Christians remember as Good Friday. It was the worst and darkest of days in that it saw the unjust murder of God's Son on the cruel cross. But God made it the best of all days for those who trust in Him. 
For on that cross, Jesus took away our sins once and for all. On that single day, the promised stone laid the foundation for the eternal temple by making the perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice of his own blood, which he himself offered to God as the perfect and acceptable high priest. That sacrifice laid the foundation on which every believer's hope of salvation securely rests. The Son of God has taken away our sin. Church, the vision of Zechariah is the promise from God that that church history affectionately calls the great exchange. Jesus took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. CB began the service with 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're a Christian. Jesus took your iniquity. He just didn't take it. Think, think of, think of a, a, a nasty turban, nasty clothes, filthy. He didn't take them and kind of ball them up and throw them in the trash, right? He didn't take them off you and say, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to see this again. I don't want to smell this. Let's just get this away from me as possible. He had to put it on because that iniquity had to be paid for. On the cross, he took every sin you have ever or will ever commit. And he gave you in return his perfection, his holiness. Jesus, who had never committed one sin, took our filthy garments and put them on himself. Good Friday is a day to mourn as we consider that our sin is so vile that nothing less than the death of God's own son allows us to have any hope for redemption, but it's also a day of hope because that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what happened. It was so bad, God's son had to die. The good news is God willingly, lovingly, graciously did just that to rescue us. He has taken our iniquity. He has paid for our iniquity. It is finished. And then two just final thoughts. The first to you, believer. When Satan accuses you that you are not worthy, when Satan accuses you that in yourself you're not good enough, the response is rightly, you're right! I'm not good enough. I am unclean. I am unworthy. But my hope is not in me. My hope is in Christ. And Christ took our sin and shame. He took our iniquity. And we are forever forgiven. And then secondly, and finally, verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me, church. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And there's a future fulfillment of this in the new heavens and new earth, but there is in this season a fulfillment of that in that we can invite our neighbors to the cross. We can invite our neighbors to see this Jesus and be saved. And if you are not a Christian tonight, we want you to see the cross and be saved. If you are not a Christian the iniquity remains on you. The wrath of God remains on you. But if we repent and trust in Christ, He will take it and He will give you His righteousness. 
In a moment, we are going to remember the broken body and shed blood of our Savior through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. You guys can start to pass it out now. As they are passing out the elements, the worship team is going to be singing a song for us. And we would encourage you just to quietly listen. I think we're going to be able to project the lyrics. As you hold the, the bread and as you hold the cup, Christian, reflect on the words. Reflect on the truth. Reflect on what Jesus has done for you. That, Christian, you can say, God has taken my filthy garments and made me, made me whiter than snow. He has taken my filthy garments. He has taken my iniquity. And he has given me Jesus. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. May we take the bread and remember he gave up his body for us. And may we remember the blood of Christ. As he said in in Matthew 26, it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. May we remember the blood of Christ that allows us to be forgiven of all our sin. At this time, John Rays is going to come up and give our closing benediction. Thank you, Ben, for that very encouraging word. There is an accuser of the brethren. But thank God for the blood of Jesus. Would you stand with me, please? Tonight's benediction will be taken out of Hebrews chapter 13, starting verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. We'll see you on Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus.